Would you open God's precious holy word to Numbers chapter 9? Am I a little loud? How's that? Oh, that's good. All right. Thank you. So by the title of the slide here, it's obvious that Israel has been out of Egypt for a year. There was the time moving from Egypt across the Red Sea to Sinai, and then the time of encampment, which is what we've been looking at here in Numbers regarding the organization and preparation for moving away from Sinai. So here, the account of the second Passover, chapter 9 and verse 1, well, beginning of verse 1. Yahweh spoke to Moses in the Sinai desert, second year of their exodus from the land of Egypt in the first month, saying, sons of Israel shall make the Passover sacrifice in its appointed time. On the afternoon of the 14th of this month, you shall make it in its appointed time in accordance with all of its statutes and all of its ordinances, you shall make it. Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, instructing them to make the Passover sacrifice. So they made the Passover sacrifice in the first month on the afternoon of the 14th day of the month in Sinai, in the Sinai Desert, according to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses, so did the sons of Israel do. You would think that what had happened a year earlier, the, the children of Israel would not forget, and they would remember to observe the Passover. Nonetheless, the reminder comes, and you'll note that it was Yahweh who spoke to Moses about the continuation of Passover. A lot of things that are said here that we should take note of as well uh, as Christians. If not for the Passover, they wouldn't exist as a people. It all came down to the Passover that night. Had God not delivered them, then everything else is a moot point. It doesn't really matter. So they owe their very existence as a nation and they are designated as the people of God in the Old Testament. They owe their existence and the privilege of their position in humanity, really at this point in time, to Passover. What happened at Passover? They were delivered by Yahweh and they were covered in their deliverance by the blood of Passover lamb, Paschal. 
this reminds them as well that they travel, they exist, and not only that, they travel and are sustained by the strength of their redemption. God did something for them that he did for no one else. And in doing it, he delivered them from what would have been the most powerful nation in the world in that time, the nation of Egypt. But of course, the power of Egypt meant nothing to God. The the plagues and all these other things, they were all lessons and wonderful lessons for the people to learn. But the Passover is what they are to commemorate and to remember. It's the same, it's the same way in a, in a sense with Christians. We're, we're nothing without what Christ did for us on, on the cross. He, he delivered us. He redeemed us. He has separated us as his own. And he did it himself by the power of his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It is the blood of Christ that has covered us, has cleansed us, and has delivered us from the awful life that we were in. All through the will and power and purpose of God, the obedience of his son, Jesus Christ, and his work on Calvary's cross. And not only are we delivered from the awful life that we were in, but we are nourished and sustained in our trek through life by the blood of Jesus Christ. In uh, communion, in Lord's Supper, for example, Jesus, and it's the only thing that Jesus said we could do to remember him. And that's the bread and, and uh, the cup. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. So the crux of our existence as Christians is that we have been delivered from the awful life and penalty of life that we were under when we were enslaved to sin. The New Testament makes it very clear that before we are delivered via salvation for ourselves that God provides and brings to us, before we are saved, we are in a horrible state. We are in a fallen state. And to remain in that fallen state brings an eternally disastrous end. But the church has been called out ecclesia. The very very compound word ek means out from, kaleo means to call. Ecclesia means the called out ones. That's what the word means. Interesting how in the English language that becomes church. In my opinion, a better, perhaps a better translation is separated assembly. Church comes from a 
an old, old Celtic type word in the early, early translations into English out of uh, Greek and Latin. Now church, ecclesia, means separated people or called out people, the called out ones. And so the original is a reference to the people. But the old, old ancient English Celtic type word that was that that predated King James language that led led up to the King James language was the word kirk or kirka, which becomes kirkus and becomes in the way that we pronounce it these days, it becomes circle or circus, and that circa the church that's a circus. I've had a couple of those in the in the um, a circle or a circus in the English language as it developed means a separated place. It has nothing to do with the people. Now, what comes out of that is a more modern English translation, not translation, but English word of church. An evolution of a word that really never meant ecclesia. Ekeleo, the ecclesia, the called out ones. So, for some reason, in the state church as it developed way back, well, leading out the, the Roman church and the state church that led out of the Reformation, for some reason, people, how could they be so, how could they ignore the language? But for some reason, they're their focus was on the place more than the people. But the meaning is the people. And the called out ones are the ones who are covered in the blood of Christ. We are nurtured and nourished throughout our trek in life by the power of the blood of Christ. It is Christ who has, who has died for us it is the call to Christ that has separated us out from uh, the world. It is the power of Christ that sustains us and then, of course, delivers us into everlasting life. And in this present journey through life, as we are now, we observe the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, we remember the powerful, powerful thing that was provided for us because of what Christ did. We talked about that a little bit this morning. Uh, the, I, don't, I don't know if I have a word big enough or powerful enough to describe the eternal impact of the incarnation, separation, atonement of Christ that led to our justification. Nothing else gives that to us. We are not heaven bound apart from the blood of Christ, those in the church. And it's something that we should always think about. We should always praise God for it 
And we should always tell others of what Christ has done for us. Well, in the same sense, we go back here. Yahweh is reminding his people, Israel, of the tremendous thing that he did for them by bringing them out of bondage, out of slavery, and carrying them to a land that he promised them hundreds of years earlier. So as they make, as it gets into the final preparation, they are to observe this Passover. Now in observing the Passover, And maybe it's because it hadn't become a thing that was entrenched in the life of Israelites just yet. It's kind of a new thing. I don't know. Even though it was a a mandate to observe it every year. But still, and it could have been something that just happened because of the circumstances of life. Certain people were, were ceremoniously unclean. Therefore, in the unclean state, they could not observe the Passover. So here's the way this was handled. There were men who were ritually unclean because of contact with a dead person. Now, you know, somebody in the family died. They had to take care of business. They had to do what they had to do. Therefore, could not make the Passover sacrifice on that day. So they approached Moses and Aaron on that day. These men said to him, we are ritually unclean because of contact with a dead person. But why should we be excluded so as not to bring the offering of Yahweh in its appointed time with all the sons of Israel? Why should we suffer exclusion because of an event in life that happened that we had to deal with? Why why should we have to suffer such that we're not allowed to bring the offering of Yahweh in the time that we're supposed to? Moses said to them, Okay, wait. I will hear what Yahweh instructs concerning you. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Any person who becomes unclean from contact with the dead, or any person who is too far away and is not able to get back on a distant journey, whether among you or in future generations, it's okay. He shall make a Passover sacrifice for Yahweh in the second month. Not the first, but the se- a month later. On the 14th day in the afternoon, they shall make it. They shall eat it with unleavened cakes and bitter herbs. Same instructions. They shall not leave over anything from it until the next, day, next morning. And they shall not break any of its bones. And they shall make it in accordance with all the statutes connecting with the Passover uh, sacrifice. But the man who was ritually clean and was not on a journey and yet refrained from making the Passover sacrifice, his soul shall be cut off from his people. For he did not bring the offering of Yahweh in its appointed time. That person shall bear his sin. If a proselyte dwells with you and he makes a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh, according to the statutes of the Passover sacrifice and its ordinance, he shall make it. One statute shall apply to you, to the proselyte, and to the native-born citizen. So, a a Gentile who has ritually joined himself to Israel. The males 
being circumcised is as a proselyte allowed to join the rest of them in the Passover. So a couple of things here that emerge from this particular passage of Scripture. The, the important thing is for the worshiper to be keenly aware of where he has come from as, a, as, a, as one of the people of God. Again, the whole thing rests on Passover in the Old Testament. Well, if they hadn't had Passover, they wouldn't have come out as a people. And the whole rest of the Old Testament, everything that leads up to the New Testament and the Christ of God and all that, it would have been a moot point. So this is an extraordinarily important thing for the people to observe. If something happens and a sincere worshiper cannot make the offering at that particular time because of uncleanness or because he's away and is unable to get back, he can still do it a month later. But there is a terrible penalty to be paid for anyone who was part of the assembly and simply didn't participate in the offering of the Passover uh, to Yahweh. The importance the, the importance of recognizing what the covering of blood has done for us. Deliverance, atonement, that God would even, that God would even allow it and then in allowing it, make a very powerful thing out of it and see to it that all of us understand what it really means. So, as with us in the New Testament, we, we can never, ever separate ourselves from what Christ has done for us. There, there are no works. These people couldn't, all they had to do was sit behind doorposts covered in blood, make a Passover lamb. The Paschal lamb, the offering, was a Passover lamb that was unblemished, clean, pure. But it, of course, represented Christ. Talked about it this morning. Finally, the great title of the Christ in the Revelation that is lifted up as much or more than any of the other titles at that time is that he's the lamb. Meaning that the people of God continually remember that in his sinlessness and purity, he is the only one who could save us. There's nothing that we could do to save ourselves. This is the same acknowledgement that these people would make back then. It was all in the power of God. God said, you, you smear the blood. You don't have to run from the destroyer when he comes. You don't. You don't have to make a deal with Pharaoh. All you do is listen to me and trust in the power of the blood. And I'll pass over you. You'll be safe. And there's a final part of this uh, passage here, this chapter. 
that references the cloud that rests above the tabernacle. And we, see, we saw this back in, we've seen all of this really, back in Exodus. But this is, a, this, this is a little bit stronger and little different in that the fire is introduced. On the day the Mishkan was erected, the tabernacle, the cloud covered it, the Mishkan, and was a tent for the testimony. And at evening, there was over the Mishkan, the, the tabernacle, what appeared to be fire, an appearance of fire, which remained until morning. And when daylight came, the cloud covered it. It was the appearance of, of cloud. So it was fire by night and a cloud by day. And according to the cloud's departure from over the tent and afterwards, the sons of Israel would travel. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the sons of Israel would encamp. At the bidding of Yahweh, the sons of Israel traveled. And at the bidding of Yahweh, they camped, encamped. And as long as the cloud hovered above the tabernacle, the Mishkan, they encamped. When the cloud lingered over the Mishkan for many days, the sons of Israel kept the charge of Yahweh and did not travel. Sometimes the cloud remained for several days above the Mishkan. At Yahweh's bidding, they encamped. And at Yahweh's bidding, they traveled. Sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. When the cloud departed in the morning, they traveled. Or the cloud remained for a day and a night, and when the cloud de departed, they traveled. Whether it was for two days, a month, or a year, that the cloud lingered to hover over the Mishkan, the sons of Israel would encamp and not travel. And when it departed, they traveled. At Yahweh's bidding, they would encamp, and at Yahweh's bidding, they would travel. They kept the charge of Yahweh by the word of Yahweh through Moses. Now we're going to see, well, first of all, this signals here, right here in this last section that we just looked at. This signals the departure of Israel from Sinai and they now begin their move toward Canaan. So this is where it begins here. All of the organization and administration details have been attended to both for war and for worship, um, how, to, how to maintain a treasury and how they would uh, survive as they went along the way. Everything, all of the, we've seen it for several weeks. This is now completed and they're going to begin their trip. Now what we're going to see pretty quickly after this is sin in the camp. They're just, they're, 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 there are going to be problems. And poor old Moses, you think he's, sometimes you think it's just driving him crazy. <laughs> but the sin will come. But here's the point. For all the awful things they did, God, the presence of God never left them. Think about that. They have this instruction. When that cloud moves, you move and you follow it. When that cloud stops and comes and rests on the tabernacle, you stop. That thing may sit there a year, you stay there. What is being said to the children of Israel is that God not only will guide them, but he will be with them 
whether they are moving or whether they are sitting still. Not just guidance and not just his presence, but his protection as well. There's a time where that fire swings around and protects the children of Israel. So it's, it, isn't, it isn't just guidance and it isn't just the prote- protection and the, and the fellowship of God and communion with him, but it's also divine protection because these are Yahweh's people. Now, these people are going to misbehave. They're going to murmur. They're going to complain. They're going to speak out against Moses. They're going to rebel against Moses. They're going to say bad things. They're going to do bad things, but God's presence never leaves them. Because the presence of God depends upon God and not man. So here, the great lesson that we learn for us, for example, we are the temple of God in this world. The living God by his Holy Spirit lives in us. We have the promise that he not only lives in us, but he He interprets our prayers. He makes our prayers suitable for them to be lifted up. He guides us. He teaches us. That probably is one of the most important things that he would teach us. He would interpret for us how we read the precious divine word of God and how it applies to our lives and whatever circumstances we may find ourselves in. The beautiful promise also is that God guarantees his presence based on who he is and not based on who we are. The woman with the bloody issue for so many years of her life had no hope left. There was nothing left. And her faith was just a faint little spark. She was on her hands and her knees. She did not want to be seen by anybody, but she had this one last hope that if she could just graze the hem of his garment, everything would be all right. She had such timid, tiny faith, but it wasn't the strength of the faith of the woman that made her whole. It was the strength of the one whose faith reached out and touched. It was the strength of Christ. It was all she needed. This is the way we are as well. We have this presence in our lives. It's real. We should be very attentive to the direction of God, to the word of God, to the instructions of God. We should be keenly sensitive to the things God says to us in our hearts. And how he applies his word to us. How he woos us and unctions us into service and into prayer. How prayer life as it goes continues to adjust our lives into the will of God. See, it's, it's not that you pray that God's will will be what you want God to do. It is that you will find your way with the help of the Holy Spirit into what the will of God is and therewith be content in living in that will because of the presence of God in our lives. And of course, the fire in the Old Testament is always a 
a type, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So in, in, in many ways, we can relate to what life was like with the Israelites in their time. And, you know, there's a, there's a time when we're enslaved. The New Testament talks about being a slave to sin. That's who lost people are. They're enslaved. They don't think they're enslaved. They think they have a free will and all this kind of thing. Their will is dominated by the God of this world and the father of lies. They don't want to admit that, but it is. They're in darkness and do not understand the light. They won't believe that, but that's the truth. Unless and until the light shines in their lives and in their hearts. And unless and until God, by grace, chooses to raise them up out of their spiritual deadness and give to them spiritual life, that they might be regenerated, that they might be born again. So we're, in that sense, finally delivered from the power of Egyptian slavery. And those shackles are broken and we are free in Christ when he brings us out of that darkness and into his light and when he gives to us this new life, this rebirth, regeneration, new life in Christ, we still, you know, one of the, we'll see along the way, one of their biggest struggles was against the Amalekites, always a type of the flesh. And that was a tough battle. They had to fight that battle and keep fighting and keep fighting and keep fighting and, and you know, hands had to be lifted and uh, there's all kinds, of, all kinds of difficulties face the children of Israel. Even their sin costs them some. You know, sin carries consequences with it. I don't care who you are. That's, that's just a fact of spiritual living. Sin carries its consequences. And so their sin, to be faithless toward God with regard to entry into the promised land, cost them 40 years. It cost a whole generation, except for two of them. It cost an entire generation. Everything. Yet even in that, God tended to them. God cared for them. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their sandals didn't wear out. He provided for them. He gave them water. He gave them food. And still his presence was there, but they had to be disciplined, and they were. So this is, this is life for us. You know, we're headed through rugged territory after we've been delivered from Egypt. And we're, we're reaching out for the place of blessing. Now, I, I, you know, I, I grew up on old-timey singing and gospel songs and all that, and Crossing the Canaan was like, crossing the Jordan was like dying and Canaan was like heaven. But you read, <laughs> you read the story of what happened to them when they got there. Canaan is just a higher plane of life. The place where we're supposed to be that brings to us the blessings of God if we'll just have faith in him, just believe in him. 
You may think there are giants in walled cities, but they're nothing in the presence of God. And this is what our Canaan is like. These things are very comparable to the life that we lead, to the lives that we lead as Christians. And as we study these things, hopefully more and more we can apply these things to our lives as well. Well, that's all we'll look at tonight. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father God in heaven, thank you. Oh Lord, thank you for the blood. Thank you, Lord, for our cleansing and our deliverance and the blood that's been applied to our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we have the wherewithal to remember and faithfully observe the things that we should observe to be reminded of Christ, our only Savior. Thank you for your presence and your guidance, even when we, we, we don't ever deserve it. And even in our worst of times, Lord, thank you still that you're present with us. Help us and strengthen us in the way that we should go. And use us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.